marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. The headline from a recent press release from Oregon Health Science University caught my attention. Quote, cannabis products demonstrate short-term reduction in chronic pain, little else. End quote. The press release was for a systematic review of global cannabis research, and I was fascinated by their findings. This episode, we'll speak with one of the co-authors of the study. We'll talk about how the study was conducted, the conclusion on chronic pain, and the surprising lack of medical research available on cannabis. Dr. Devin Consagra joins us next. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast, one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Dr. Devin Consacra is a professor of medicine at Oregon Health Science University and a staff physician at the VA Portland Healthcare System. He's also a co-author of a systematic review of cannabis research. Doctor, if you would, explain your expertise and then what you do when it comes to this study. Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm an, an internist and I practice in the inpatient and outpatient settings. And relevant to this, I have done a lot of work with evidence-based medicine and, and looking at the breadth of studies on a given topic and you know seeing what they say when you look at them all together. And that's what this systematic review was, looking at chronic pain. And then I also lead a project called STEM, which stands for Systematically Testing the Evidence on Marijuana, which is a VA-funded project that aims to empower clinicians to have more evidence-informed discussions about cannabis with their patients, and then also to encourage more research in the area through a network of researchers. So we have a website dedicated to that. Doctor, how did this study begin? What was the process to get the funding, and where did this all start? Yeah, so this is a project that was commissioned by AHRQ, which stands for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And they're a government agency that does a number of things, but they fund 
projects that are meant to inform the general public and practitioners and researchers in the U.S. This particular project came up because, as you know, chronic pain is very common. It's very challenging to treat. And also, we're in the midst of a really devastating opioid epidemic. So I think everyone is interested in any safe and effective alternatives to treat chronic pain. And so HRQ is interested in knowing what we know about the use of plant-based compounds, particularly cannabis for the treatment of chronic pain. So in essence, you took a look at about 3,000 research products, then distilled down the information that you found scientifically sound and then published your findings based off that evidence? Yeah, no, no. I think that's the that's the basics of it. It's a systematic review, which means that you systematically look at all the stuff that's been published on a given topic. And so you start with a large number. And a lot of that is just sorting through stuff that's just not relevant at all. And then you end up with a smaller set of studies that might be relevant, but they're not looking at the treatment uh, that you're interested in, or they're not reporting outcomes such as pain that you're interested in, or they're not uh, you know, relevant to this. They're too short, right? So the shortest duration of follow-up that we looked at in terms of study was four weeks or longer, because we're talking about the treatment of chronic pain. So you needed some criteria there. So, um, so yeah, that we kind of set out these criteria ahead of time find the studies that meet those criteria, and then look at them all together. And the rationale for doing these systematic reviews is that if you look at only one study, you only get part of the picture. It's a little bit akin to that analogy of the blind person, the elephant. If you're only touching one part of the elephant, that's what you'll think the elephant is. But really, you want to look at the whole elephant. The headline on the press release was cannabis products demonstrate short-term reduction in chronic pain, little else. What were those initial findings? Yeah. Yeah. So I can give you, you know, the big stroke findings are that there's a couple of cannabis related products that appear to, on average, have small effects in terms of pain reduction. Mostly in patients have nerve related pain or neuropathic pain. And we have information up to a few months out. We don't know the effects beyond that. To go into a little bit more detail, one of the products that's been better studied is a product with comparable amounts of THC and CBD, cannabidiol, in a, a spray form or a mucosal spray. There's a product called Nabiximols, and that's been fairly well studied in patients with neuropathic pain. And that seems to be associated with you know, small reductions in pain. It also is associated in a subset of patients with 30% or more reduction in pain. So there's you know, a subset that does have a pain response and also a small amount of evidence that improves function, pain-related function. The trade-off is an increased risk of dizziness and feeling tired, you know, sedation. There's another set of studies looking at synthetic compounds. So these are, you know, products that are made in the lab that have, you know, basically synthetic THC. And there's uh, several studies that suggest that those products may reduce pain severity for a short amount of time. We just don't have any studies that have followed patients beyond about four months is the longest study. So we don't know whether or not they work over the longer term. So you can't scientifically say that at the two-year mark, it's still effective for those patients because that research hasn't been done. 
it looks like, again, reading the press release, that the team was surprised at the lack of research or available research on products that are very readily available in the United States in various forms. You know, I, I don't know whether or not we were surprised at the lack of research. I mean, I think we, we knew some of that going in. But you're right that there is a disconnect between, you know, the amount of cannabis that's available and, you know, the pace at which policy has changed and the interest that there is in cannabis as a potential treatment for various conditions and the amount of evidence we have looking at it one way or the other, right? Just kind of the lack of evidence for a lot of these things. So there's a huge disconnect there. And there's so many people interested in in using it or have questions about using it, that I really think we need to do a better job of getting more information out there. That's partly why we started the STEM project, why there's been a lack of research. In this country, it's been a Schedule One substance. So the, the regulations associated with that make it difficult to study. For example, up until just last year, there was only one place in the entire country where researchers could get cannabis to use in studies in the U.S., and that happened to be at the University of Mississippi. They've eased up on some of those regulations. And encouragingly, just a couple of months ago, both the House and Senate overwhelmingly passed bills that would make it easier to do cannabis research. So uh, I think the Senate passed it unanimously in the House by 80 some odd percent. So I think it's looking good that one of those will pass and, and that'll make it easier to do research. I think there are organizations that are now starting to catch up with the public interest in the topic, which is partly why you're seeing this AHRQ study funded. The VA is funding its first uh, clinical trial of cannabis for neuropathic pain and, and NIH is funding more and more studies on this. So I think people are trying to catch up. So the 3,000 research projects you looked at predominantly, where are they coming from? If there's a lack of research in the United States due to Schedule One controlled substance status, you're looking at global studies, I assume. Yeah, so the studies that were included in the review, many of them were done in Europe. You know, so Europe and Israel have done a lot of studies. There, are, there have been some U.S. studies as well. You know, the 3,000, again, that's you know, a lot of those things are just... Uh, a matter of of finding the right subset of study. So a lot of those aren't aren't relevant to the the topic at all. But yeah, you know, a lot of the the work up until recently has been done in in Europe and in Israel and elsewhere. And, and hopefully that'll change. I, I think you're right now. You know, virtually everybody in the field agrees on one thing, which is that we need you know more and better research. One of the terms that I saw used in your study is whole plant product. The press release said there is very little research on whole plant product benefits or harm that it can do. What is a whole plant product? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So one of the challenges with cannabis-related research is that cannabis isn't necessarily just one thing, right? The cannabis plant has, you know, over 140 different compounds in it, many of which we don't even know clinically what they what they do or how they interact with one another and so forth. And so when when you're talking about cannabis for medicinal purposes, you know, we like to figure out what what works, what precisely works, what dose and what are the harms and benefits of, of that dose. So part of what we tried to do with this review is set up a categorization scheme 
for kind of pairing like with like. You want to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And it wouldn't necessarily make sense to, you know, kind of pool, uh, put together a study with the CBD along with a study that's looking predominantly at THC, right? So we kind of separated those out. So we looked at a categorization scheme, a few different dimensions. One was the relative amounts of THC and CBD in the product. And another was whether the product was derived from plants or whether it was synthetic. And that's important because the whole plant, as I said, has all of these other compounds in it. And so when you're looking at whole plant products, you're also... You know, there's there may be interactions between all these other compounds. And when you see whether or not it works, it probably only applies to that whole plant product. We don't know if it would apply to the synthetic product and vice versa. So that's really the long and short of it. When we say that there, you know, whole plant products have not been well tested in the trials, you know, what that means for the public is that most of what you have access to in dispensaries are whole plant products. You know, it's the flour, it's the stuff that people would smoke or any derivative thereof would be whole plant products. And we today don't have very much information about what those do in terms of effects on chronic pain and other conditions. This is a living evidence review, which means that as more studies come in, you're adding it to the review and then publishing new results. How long is the commitment to this study and how often will you publish updates? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So th- there's plans for funding for up to five years and you know the pace at which the research accumulates, you know, Quite frankly, over the last couple of updates, they're updated quarterly. So every three months, there's not been a lot added. And we'll see, you know, over the coming years, if you look at these databases, which track studies that are ongoing and are trying to recruit patients, there's a lot of cannabis studies going on right now. So we're optimistic that over the next two or three years, there'll be more in the pipeline. Are you hoping that this project helps guide new research to allow for longer studies and studies that are more specific to the parameters that you're searching? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the benefits of doing a systematic review, kind of looking at the lay of the land of everything that's been done on a given topic is to understand not only what we know, but what we don't know. So identifying the gaps is an important way to direct future research. So we know from looking at this, as you mentioned, that you know the, the studies only go up to this much. We, we really need longer term data because for chronic conditions like chronic pain, you know, presumably people are going to be on this for months or years and you want to know whether or not the effects last that long. We have, you know, relatively more information about neuropathic pain than other types of pain. It's important for people to know that. We really don't know what the effects are on low back pain because it really hasn't been studied very well. So, you know, there's there's a need for studies in that population. Breaking up the studies in terms of the type of product that's being studied also helps identify the gaps in the types of products that have been studied. So we have, you know, relatively more information about these sprays. We have almost no information about CBD, which is a question I get asked all the time by patients and, you know, friends and family and everybody. And so that's one particular gap that we need to fill. The STEM project. And I know that we've been specifically talking about the chronic pain review. But are there other areas in that review? Are there other reviews happening for specific research on marijuana? Yeah, we have living reviews on cannabis for 
PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, cannabis use in pregnancy, what the effects are on uh, neonatal outcomes, cannabis use disorder, the treatment of that. And then we're about to post one. It's not there yet, but on the the epidemiology and risk factors for cannabis use disorder, which is the fancy term for addiction, you know, cannabis-related addiction. For clinicians, we have these shorter clinician briefs, which cover other topics like cannabis and the use of opioid. Is it used as a substitute? What's the research on that? Fertility and you know, a number, number of other things. Right now, if a patient comes to their doctor, their clinician, and expresses an interest in a cannabis product for chronic pain, because that's the study we're talking about. What generally does the clinician do now? With it now legal in so many states, I would assume the question is being asked more often. So what is the approach that the medical field currently takes without a lot of scientific evidence behind cannabis? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the tricky aspects of this. And so first, I'd like to point out that you're right that with legalization, more people feel comfortable using. And, you know, the data shows that use rates have gone up, not surprisingly. But I will say that people aren't necessarily having these conversations with their clinicians, at least not as often as I and others think they should. So I think we need to make, I think we as clinicians also need to make that conversation comfortable for people and we need to get educated ourselves, right? It's not really been a part of medical school curricula. And so a lot of clinicians don't feel comfortable having those discussions and we're trying to change that. When you look at data, you know, patients do say they want to talk to their clinicians, but in practice, they're getting a lot of information from dispensaries. And you get a different sort of information when you talk to your clinicians. You know, I think there's a lot of things we deal with in medicine where we don't have perfect data, and yet we still have to come up with something to say in a conversation. So one approach Regardless of whether or not you practice in a place where you can certify a patient to use medical cannabis, I can't. I, I work at, at the VA. Regardless, though, patients can in, in Oregon and many other states now can access it themselves. So then it's a matter of if they're interested and they've made a choice to use it, you can explain the potential benefits and risks. And I think there's also this aspect of harm reduction approach, which might make sense for the current era of cannabis policy we have right now, where it's really an individual's choice. And here as a clinician, knowing your medical conditions, what your risk factors are, and so on and so forth, here are things you can do to try to minimize your exposure to harms over the long run. And so examples of that might include, so some people are at higher risk for addiction to, to cannabis. So clinician might say, well, you know, you've had other use disorders in the past, so you're, you're going to be at higher risk. So we might want to be cautious here, or let's check in about this routinely so that we, we make sure we're not running into that problem. I found it helpful to explain to patients that there's something called cannabis withdrawal syndrome, which is if you've used regularly and frequently for a long time and you stop using you can go through withdrawal, which you know includes symptoms like restlessness, insomnia, sometimes depression, irritability, and so forth. And these symptoms overlap with symptoms that people sometimes use cannabis to treat. So if they're not aware of that, they may be kind of mistakenly self-treating withdrawal. And I think just being aware that that's a thing can help people. So I tell people, you know, if you're going to use, maybe don't use every day because of this risk and maybe, you know, a few days a week rather than every day. You know, I think there's a number of examples like that where you know, most any clinician can still have that conversation 
without stigmatizing it, you know, without making it uncomfortable, but still providing some good practical advice. And this research issue is not just cannabis. I mean, there are other products out there that claim to have some sort of medicinal benefit that we don't have the research on, like botanical derivatives. There are many products out there that claim to have benefits that we really don't have the scientific data to prove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's 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 all sorts of stuff out there that people ask us about. And sometimes there's no information. And then we just have to say, look, I, I, I really don't know, even from the standpoint of I don't even know how this interacts with your other medications. But at least with cannabis, we do have some data to guide at least the harm reduction parts of things. You know, we're starting to look at drug interactions and other things like that where I think we can provide some advice. But you're right. It's not the only thing out there where we have imperfect science. What should people take from this study as it stands now? What's the most important aspect that you want people to understand? You know, I think there's a couple of specific types of products that might improve pain to at least a small degree in people with nerve-related pain over the short term. We don't know whether it helps over the long term or whether those benefits start to attenuate, start to go down over time. And we don't know, therefore, what the balance of benefits and harms is going to be over a year or two of treatment. That's true of many other things we do in medicine as well. And that's why you see a clinician and you you try and say, well, if we're going to guess here based on what we know, how does that apply to your situation with your medical conditions and your risk factors? Are you going to be at greater risk for these harms or less risk? And, and that kind of changes your threshold for, are, are you willing to kind of try? And then as we've been discussing a lot, the other take home would be the gaps in evidence. We, you know, we, we don't know a lot about cannabis for treating pain other than nerve-related pain, low back pain, arthritis-related pain, even cancer-related pain. And we don't know much about the use of the products that you're most likely to encounter in dispensaries. Is there any part of the topic of cannabis use in general that you want people to know? Yeah, I think one question that comes up is kind of a gauge of what doses we're talking about in the studies and what people are likely to encounter. So I think that's important to just have a little bit of a ballpark sense of what they're looking at in these studies. So in the studies of the spray, where it's equal amounts THC and CBD, on average, the total amount of THC they were using in the trials, it would be, you know, eight sprays or so a day on average. So that's about 20 milligrams of THC or so in a 24-hour period. Similar or a little lower with the synthetic cannabinoid studies. So just to give a little bit of a ballpark and how that might compare to what people are exposed to with the products that are available in the dispensaries. If people would like to visit the STEM website and read your research for themselves, what is the website again? It's uh, www.cannabisevidence.org. Doctor, I would also like to extend the invitation to have you back on to talk about cannabis and PTSD. I know that over the past few years, it's been added to the list of conditions that qualify for medicinal marijuana. And I would love to have that conversation down the road as well. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Doctor, thank you so much. I'm going to continue to watch for any updates. I'm going to visit the website a lot. 
And I thank you for the work that you're doing because I do believe it's vitally important for people to have a better understanding of what they're consuming. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I enjoyed talking with you. Dr. Devin Consagra, professor of medicine at Oregon Health Science University and a staff physician at the VA Portland Healthcare System. Mainstream media. One of the biggest takeaways from my conversation with Dr. Consagro was the stigma around cannabis is preventing patients from even having a conversation about it with their healthcare provider. I encourage you, if you are considering cannabis for medicinal reasons, talk to your doctor about it. Have that conversation about the products available and the doses. Let them help inform you on what the plant's benefits and risks are. Their counsel can only benefit you as a patient. Thank you for listening to Mainstream Media on the COIN Podcast Network.